In December 1888, Tucson's Arizona Weekly Citizen newspaper would write about one of the salient political issues of the day, identifying it in particular as being unusually disruptive and corrupting to good governance in the territory. The paper would print that the, quote, sooner it is eliminated from Arizona politics, the better it will be for the greater interest of the territory, end quote. And they weren't entirely wrong. This one issue had pitted communities against each other for years, with each side taking every chance to slander the other one's weather, wealth, status, and morals. Charges of bribery and other backroom shenanigans were rampant, and newspapers of the day published editorial after editorial denouncing what they viewed as political schemes run amok. All throughout the 1880s, whether bills actually came up in the territorial legislature or not, everyone was on the watch to see if they could outmaneuver whomever was on the other side of this one issue. It would lead to massive infrastructure projects, not to mention a vast amount of what we today call pork, just to keep everyone happy or to maintain balance. And the issue in question would take five full sessions of the territorial legislature and a full decade to finally settle. So what you ask could be so divisive that it would split the territory like this? Well, it's actually one we've dealt with ever since there was an American government in Arizona. Where in the territory would a group of 34 men gather once every two years? years. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 116, The Hungry Bear. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you are as rested as I am following the culmination of the Apache Wars and the final, final surrender of Geronimo. But much like coming out of a darkened movie theater into the bright midday sunlight, we now have to kind of blink a bit and get our bearings. Narrating the Apache Wars for the past 24 episodes was fun, but we really do need to remember that there was so much happening elsewhere in the state. So, like I've done before after our long run on the shootout at the OK Corral, I think a quick look at politics will be the perfect palate cleanser. Of course, that means having to go back and dig through my notes about where we left off, so one second. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I remember that, I think. Okay, I think I'm caught up. When last we left off, we were talking about the 13th Territorial Legislature, which acquired the rather unflattering nickname of the Thieving 13th due to their propensity to spend big and try to milk every last dime out of the federal payroll. But we also wrapped up that episode, episode 91, by the way, talking about the resignation of Governor Frederick A. Triddle, who bowed out graciously before having the chance to be booted out by incoming President Grover Cleveland. Remember that Triddle was a Republican, Cleveland very much wasn't, and the president appointed the territorial governor. So, first and foremost, we have to welcome our newest governor, the first of three Democrats to serve in that position, Conrad 
Mayor Zulek. Zulek had been born in Pennsylvania in 1839, and he had gone into the practice of law, being admitted into the bar in New Jersey. He had served with some distinction in the Civil War, rising to the rank of colonel, before returning to civilian life and his legal career. This also meant going into local politics, and Zulik held various positions around Essex County, New Jersey, though territorial historian Jay Wagner says that he declined his party's nomination for both Congress and the New Jersey governorship. His appointment to Arizona's highest position in October 1885 came mostly through the endorsement of his friend, U.S. Senator John McPherson of New Jersey, and that helped him win over such illustrious Arizonans as Granville Aury, Charles Hayden, and John G. Campbell. Early state historian James H. McClintock, and wow, how long has it been since we've heard that name, gives the rather humorous story that at the time of his appointment, Zulik was actually down in Sonora, trying to straighten out some financial troubles for a mining group he was involved with. When a messenger from Tombstone found him, Zulik was actually sitting under house arrest, being held until the mining group's debts had been paid, according to Mexican law. So there was actually this whole actual 2 a.m. jailbreak to get him out of the house and out of Sonora. Once he was safely across the border, then he was informed of his appointment as governor. Auspicious start, right? Let me tell you, it's only going to get rockier from here. During his administration, Zulik would wade hip-deep into a number of issues, which I'm going to try and briefly summarize here as some sort of preamble before getting to the main meat of today's episode. One of these issues we've already covered back in episode 82, when Zulik persuaded the legislature to remove the test oath for voting that had disenfranchised the Mormon population of the territory. As I mentioned back then, Mormons of the time tended to vote Democrat, so he had a vested interest in them making it to the polls unmolested, but it was not a popular move and earned him a lot of enmity. Zulik also had the um, pleasure of being governor starting in the fall of 1885. And what else was happening in the fall of 1885? If you don't know the answer to that question, then I'm afraid you definitely haven't been paying attention and will not pass the test at the end. So please go back to episode 92 and start re-listening now. But for the rest of you, that's right. Geronimo has broken out of Turkey Creek and has been on the run for months now, where the raiders like Chihuahua and Uzana striking near Fort Apache itself. Given the time and the place, it shouldn't be surprising to anyone that Zulik heavily championed removal of the Apache from Arizona altogether, and was all in on punishing someone for all the depredations that the Chiricahua had inflicted on the white population. He even singled out Wera, the wife of Mongus, then a captive at Fort Bowie, as a good candidate for some frontier justice. We talked about Wera back in episodes 101 and 102 when she was a prime contributor to the eventual outbreak from Turkey Creek. Zulik would even go so far as to say, quote, A little hanging would be beneficial in the long run, for it would teach all Indians in this territory that under no pretext whatever can they commit murder without being punished. End quote. 
After the Chiricahua's eventual removal, and upon hearing that Herbert Welsh and John C. Burke were advocating sending the Apache west again, he wrote a letter strenuously objecting to this plan. While praising Welsh's humanitarian aims, Zulik said, quote, I do respectfully protest against the starting of a new breeding pen for assassins in Arizona. Mercy to them is cruelty to us. End quote. There's nothing new in this casual racism toward the Apache, and it merely reflects the widespread attitudes of the time, unfortunately. However, at the same time, Zulik was actually telling the American population of Arizona not to take the law into their own hands when it came to the Apache, and to wait for the army and other officials to bring the Chiricahua to their heels. And believe it or not, he's actually going to take even more dings to his reputation in both the popular perception and in the press because he told them, don't shoot Indians. The governor also managed to step in it on another issue, ranching. Fearing that diseased European cattle had been dumped onto Mexican ranches that were then being sold to American ranches, in 1887, Zulik issued a proclamation banning the straight importation of cattle from Mexico. Instead, any cattle destined for Arizona had to sit at the border for 90 whole days, and only then would a certificate be granted permitting their entrance into the U.S. This proclamation, understandably, wrinkled Mexico to the point that it wanted to engage in economic retaliation. Arizona ranchers who grazed stock in Mexico were also incensed by the measure. And I will add here that this proclamation was eventually struck down as being unconstitutional because only Congress can pass laws regulating interstate and foreign commerce. But I think my favorite of all of Zulek's trials and tribulations has to do with political appointees. When he came into office, he found that Triddle, his predecessor, had named a whole slew of Republicans to various territorial positions, which is what one would expect. However, Zulik wanted to replace them with a slate of Democrats, also as one would expect. Except these, stating that the Territorial Council had made appointments for two-year terms, refused to be dismissed. The heads of the insane asylum were particularly stubborn. They were accused of selling bonds approved by the 13th legislature at too low a price, but refused to acknowledge the authority of the governor to investigate them and would not turn over their books. For a time before a court order ended this whole affair, there were even two sets of officials, the ones Zulik appointed and the Republicans who refused to vacate their office. If you couldn't tell by now, Zulik is not having a very good governorship. By January 1887, Zulik had been in office for a year, and it was time to preside over the biennial territorial legislature. Due in large part to the excesses of the previous legislature, the Thieving 13th, the governor called for retrenchment in everything this upcoming legislature did. They apparently took up this mantle with some gusto, spending just over $44,000 during their session, compared with the more than $294,000 the Thieving 13th had spent during its tenure. Because of this low-key frugality, this session also gained a catchy nickname, the Measley 14th. 
That name also works as something of a double joke because during the session, many of the representatives actually did contract the measles. Despite the very chill nature of this legislature, there are a couple things that I want to touch on. The first is that a bill was submitted to carve out a chunk of northern Yavapai County into a proposed county called Frisco, with Flagstaff as its county seat. This was voted down, thank goodness, because, I'm sorry, Frisco is just a silly name. However, a future legislature would pick up the issue again, and in 1891, the much better-named Coconino County would be formed out of the area. The second thing to discuss is an 1886 act by Congress, partially in response to the excesses of Arizona's thieving 13th legislature. Called the Harrison Act, named after the chairman of the Senate Committee on Territories and future U.S. President Benjamin Harrison, it was mostly aimed at defining what type of debt a territorial government could occur and capping how much debt it could take on. But it also had a few other fun stipulations, including banning territories from passing bills that would do such minutiae as changing the name of people or places, locating or moving county seats, and incorporating municipalities. The bill also avowed Congress's ability to annul territorial laws at will. But the real reason I bring the bill up now is because it also bans something that we've discussed before. That is, territorial legislatures could no longer grant people divorces. You may remember from past episodes that the legislature used to regularly enact bills breaking up marriages, including one for Governor Anson P. Case Hafford. Well, that's all over now. As you can probably tell, nothing that the 14th legislature would do would really give Zulik another political black eye. For that, we need to turn to the 15th legislature and the final removal of the territorial capital from Prescott. Now, the political football that was the location of the territorial capital is something that we've talked about a lot before, but here's a short recap. Tucson had long been the cultural and political center of Arizona, mainly because for a long time it was literally the only town around. However, it had been royally snubbed to become the capital in the 1860s, mainly because the new American government considered it to have too much Southern sympathy, and in another fit of the casual racism endemic to the 1800s, they dubbed it too Mexican for their tastes. So first Fort Whipple, then Prescott, was declared the capital in 1864, instantly setting up a natural rivalry between it and the old Pueblo. Then the legislature, with a push from territorial governor Richard C. McCormick, voted in 1867 to move the capital to Tucson for all sorts of political reasons. But a decade later, in 1877, a resurgent Prescott, backed by a large block of Yavapai County legislators, was able to secure the capital once again. And that's where things stood last time we checked in on them. But like any good rivalry, since one side was up, the other side was conspiring. As soon as the legislature met in Prescott for its 1879 session, bills were introduced to take the capital away again. While still a booming mining town, Prescott did have some serious drawbacks as a capital. 
First and foremost, it was cold, icy, and snowing in the wintertime, which was a huge detriment when you consider that the legislature started all its sessions in January. Second, it was pretty remote from the other population centers to the south. And finally, there was no good straight rail connection between it and those other population centers. Tucson, of course, was a major city with a major railroad connection, and you certainly couldn't claim that it was too cold in the winter. But this is also where our next challenger enters the ring. Phoenix. By now a thriving agricultural center, Phoenix also offered a warm winter retreat with a decent railroad connection. Plus it had the benefit of not being either Tucson or Prescott, but a happy medium between the two, both politically and geographically. And candidate cities were not above taking swipes at each other, which is really my favorite part of any of these capital fights. One defender of Prescott's right to the capital shot back at the idea that it was too cold and snowy by saying it was better for Arizona, quote, to have one to two of her legislators frozen to death or drowned in slush occasionally, as they only have to be at the capital two months every other year, than to have all her territorial officials baked and sizzled, melted and stewed nine months of the year with the intolerable heat of the Salt River Valley, end quote. At one point, just to cut through the acrimony, the Phoenix-based Arizona Gazette newspaper facetiously suggested that the easiest solution was just for cities to draw straws. But long story short, as the legislature met in 1881, 1883, 1885, and 1887, there was always some talk about some bill that was about to be introduced to take the capital away. Prescott slash Yavapai County was able to keep these things at bay, mainly through some political maneuvering to undercut its rivals. For example, delegates from Yavapai County in 1881 would conspire with legislators from this new place called Tombstone to split off their section of Pima County to become Cochise County if the Tombstone delegation would vote against any measure to send the capital to Tucson. There was no capital-moving bill in the 1883 12th legislature, though someone did try to sneakily pass it through as a House resolution. But the Arizona Weekly Citizen in Tucson printed that Prescott was very paranoid about, quote, a bear hungering after their hold upon the seat of government, end quote. You can go back to episode 91 to listen to how far the Thieving 13th had gotten in its capital fight in 1885, Though I should point out that in that episode, I gave the more salacious version, i.e. trying to bribe people. But I would be remiss if I didn't also mention that a journal article about the Capitol fight in the autumn 1981 edition of Arizona and the West says that Tucson was willing to put up a fight for the Capitol, but the newspapers suddenly turned against the idea. Poor Representative C.C. Stevens from Tucson thought that this meant there was a turn of public opinion, and he then voted against moving the capital, only to arrive home and find that public opinion had been very much in favor of getting the capital, which is why he was eventually pelted with rotting vegetables and a dead cat. That part never gets old. Also from episode 91, and you should really just go back and give it a listen. It's good times. 
Prescott invested a lot of money to connect with the Atlantic and Pacific, later Santa Fe, railroad to the north, to cut down on the whole Prescott's too hard to get to argument. The 14th legislature in 1887 would be fairly quiet, though there were at least three people who said that they might introduce a capital bill, though they received enough negative sentiment to never really carry through with these announcements. Which finally brings us to the 15th legislature in 1889, or the one that would see the deed done. This time, all of these southern counties finally realized that Yavapai had just been playing them off each other, and so they all began to push Phoenix as the place to be, given its central location, good winter climate, and ease of access via railroad. And Phoenix, which turned out to be just the hungry bear those up north feared, also played another trump card, by pointing out that the legislature's facilities in Prescott were cramped and, frankly, inadequate. So it helpfully offered the use of its brand new city hall, which had enough space for the territorial officials to do their work until a proper capital building could be built. And because this is the 19th century, they also weren't above just paying people off. A boodle, and that is the exact word that two of my sources use for this, of upwards of $10,000 was raised, and then spread around very liberally to legislators to vote yes on the removal. The Maricopa County delegation also seems to have gone in for a lot of quid pro quo deals, saying that they would help other counties with their legislative wish list if the other counties would vote their way. Phoenix real estate and streetcar developer Moses H. Sherman summed up the attitude of the Times by saying, quote, You see... Phoenix wants the capital, and the whole crowd is working to this end. It may take a little money, and if it does, we fellows are ready to put up some. End quote. So, by the time that the 15th Territorial Legislature actually met on January 21st, 1889, it was all but assumed that the measure would pass. All the necessary legislators had been lined up, and even Governor Zulik had voiced his support for the switch to Phoenix though he decided not to mention the contentious issue in his opening statement to the legislature. Prescott, thoroughly outgunned and outmaneuvered at this point, could only gnash its teeth in frustration. During the first week, House Bill No. 1 was introduced by a representative from Phoenix, and it was quickly approved in a 13-10 vote. It was then sent to the council, where it passed 9-2, the only dissenting votes coming predictably from Mojave and Yavapai County legislators. On January 26, 1889, Governor Zulik dutifully signed the bill into law, which stated that as of February 4th of that same year, the capital of the Arizona Territory would be Phoenix. You may have just caught that the switch in capitals wasn't waiting until the next session or even the end of the current session. That's right. They were all going to head down south in nine days. And this predictably put the territorial secretary into a tizzy as he had to cancel all the rental receipts for the space the legislature had been meeting in and then somehow get all the territorial documents and property down to Phoenix immediately, mainly because he was required by law to attend all legislative sessions. 
Meanwhile, the legislators mutually agreed to recess until they could all meet up in the Salt River Valley on February 7th. But while there was a perfectly good stage route between Prescott and Phoenix, the celebrating officials decided on a more, shall we say, luxurious route. Boarding two specially prepared Pullman cars from the Santa Fe Railroad, they spent a few days traveling first to Los Angeles and then hopping onto the Southern Pacific Line to Phoenix. These cars, the entertainment along the way, and a bevy of fine silk hats for everyone were, of course, paid for in full by interested Phoenicians led by Mayor DeForest Porter. I should also mention that once the legislature did convene in their new digs, they voted that the residents of Phoenix should be reimbursed for this largesse, something that made those in Prescott scream all the louder. Along with what is already a fun little tale of politics and glad-handing, there were even more fun rumors and stories that swirled around the removal of the capital from Prescott. One is that the removal faction of the legislators had a one-vote lead when they arrived in Prescott. That evening, one of those delegates decided to spend the night in the company of a certain woman named Jenny, whose profession it was to give gentlemen pleasurable company for the evening. The story goes that the legislator had both a glass eye and a certain vanity about his appearance. He removed his glass eye and put it into a tumbler of water for his evening with Jenny, but woke up thirsty in the middle of the night and absentmindedly downed the contents of the tumbler, including the glass eye. The next morning, he refused to leave his bed and be seen without his eye, despite the fact that the bill would fail without his vote. Finally, Jenny had to convince one of her associates to part with her glass eye for a time, and the legislator managed to get to the House chambers just as his name was called for his vote. His eyes didn't match, but he was able to say, I, and the Capitol was moved. The leaders of Phoenix were said to have considered erecting a statue to Jenny, but upon further reflection, decided it was not a proper thing to do. Another version of this, coming from state historian Marshall Trimble, is that the delegate in question was actually from Yavapai County, but with the same glass eye and vanity about his appearance. In this telling, delegates from Phoenix colluded with Jenny to delay the man from the crucial vote. She supposedly drank the glass of water with the eye in it, or somehow otherwise hid it. The next morning, the man could not be prevailed upon to appear in public without it, and Jenny either would not or could not produce the glass eye. Thus, he missed the vote, and the removal went through without a hitch. Now, both these versions are fabrications with very little, if any, basis in reality. But don't you just wish you lived in the world where one of them was true? Once in Phoenix, the legislature enjoyed the comfy new digs at the Plaza, which was between Washington, Jefferson, 1st, and 2nd Streets. Later on, Moses H. Sherman and another real estate developer donated part of their holdings west of the city proper, a total of 10 acres, as a place for a permanent capital. They also offered to extend Washington Street and the streetcar service and other roads out to 17th Avenue create new roads, build a park across the Capitol, and landscape the grounds. 
With the capital question settled early on in the game, the rest of the 15th legislature passed rather quietly. Among its more notable acts was passing a law that imposed the death sentence for those who engaged in train robbery, because let's never forget that we're still dealing with the frontier here. And to just double down on the Wild West vibe, they also voted to prohibit the possession of deadly weapons inside of a city's limits. One other major item is that the legislature passed a resolution calling for a constitutional convention to be convened so that Arizona could press for statehood. Those of you familiar with your history know that this effort's not going to go anywhere for another 23 years. But this was mostly due to the fact that issues with the Apache and the bloody Pleasant Valley War, which will come up sooner rather than later in our podcast, made it seem that Arizona still had a few things to iron out before it could join the other states at the adult table. Zulik was a major proponent of statehood, stating, quote, The time has now arrived when Arizona should be relieved from this state of tutelage and be endowed with the duties and responsibilities of statehood. The rapid increase in wealth and population, the energy and patriotism of her people, are sure guarantees that she would wear the robes of state sovereignty with dignity and honor. End quote. Which is a nice sentiment, but unfortunately, Zulik was already on borrowed time. He had only got the job because Democratic President Grover Cleveland had come into office and appointed him to take over for Triddle, who had resigned before Cleveland could replace him. But in 1888, Cleveland had been ousted from office by Republican Benjamin Harrison. Since in those days presidents were inaugurated in March, not January, Zulik was able to preside over the legislature at the start of 1889. However, it was apparent to everyone that he was on his way out the door. Remembering his own experience at the beginning of his term, Zulik tried to appoint a slate of Democratic nominees to hold territorial offices, but these were all rejected by the thoroughly Republican territorial legislature. And this legislature would also postpone adjourning past their usual 60-day end date, much against the wishes of Zulek, so that they could welcome his replacement, Louis Wolfley, and confirm his appointment. Zulek would stay in Arizona for several years, even serving in the 16th legislature in 1891, but eventually he returned to New Jersey, where he would die in 1926. Among his contemporaries, Zulik's reputation was never that good, as he managed to take hits from all sides for virtually everything he did. His perceived deference towards Mormons, his cattle quarantine, his advocating people not shoot Apache, I mean, what kind of monster says something like that, his run-ins with Republican appointees, his very ardent partisanship, and finally, for backing Phoenix as the capital. And just to show you how deep Prescott's anger ran, we have a charming little anecdote from January 1915, 26 years after the event in question, and just three years after Arizona finally achieved statehood. The second state legislature voted on a House resolution to invite the old territorial governor to come back and see what Arizona had become. On the face of it, this was just another feel-good, rah-rah resolution that should have passed easily. Instead, however, it was resoundingly defeated. The issue? 
Zulik was loudly denounced on the floor by none other than the state senator from Yavapai County and former mayor of Prescott, Morris Goldwater, who specifically mentioned the circumstances of the capital removal as reason enough to not invite the former governor back. Now that's what I call a grudge. We're going to leave off here for this week, but join me next week as we play catch-up on other factors affecting Arizona around this time, including a long-needed conversation of certain economic forces, including railroads, cattle, and sheep. It may not sound too exciting, but those latter two will eventually feed into a bloody feud in the Tonto Basin that rivals the much more well-known Hatfields and McCoys. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.